2: Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a program where we talk journalists and journalism. I'm Sharon Davis. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device around the globe via podcast. This week we're focusing on the threats to press freedom in the Philippines, where on Monday Maria Ressa, award-winning investigative journalist, editor and co-founder of the influential online news site Rappler, was convicted on cyber libel charges. Maria Ressa and researcher Ronaldo Santos Jr., face up to six years in prison for a story published in 2012 that alleged links between a businessman and a top judge. Ressa, the former CNN bureau chief in Indonesia and the Philippines and Time magazine's Person of the Year in 2018, is also facing an additional seven criminal charges. These include another libel prosecution, tax evasion and alleged illegal foreign ownership in her companies. All up, if found guilty, these allegations could lead to about 100 years in prison. Maria will join us shortly. The convictions have been widely condemned, including by the US State Department and the European Union, as a politically motivated attack on press freedom. Since its inception in 2012, Rappler has grown into one of the largest news websites in the Philippines with more than 100 journalists. It has scrutinised the administration of the Philippines' president, Rodrigo Duterte, exposing corruption and documenting his brutal anti-drugs campaign, which has led, by some estimations, to tens of thousands of extrajudicial killings. In turn, the president has dismissed Rappler in terms that might sound familiar, as peddling fake news, and his administration has instigated several cases against the site. Maria has been granted bail while she appeals the conviction, and we're pleased to say she's with us via Zoom from Manila. Maria, thanks for joining us at what must be a very stressful time. And to discuss the increasing threats to press freedom in the Philippines, we're also joined by veteran journalist and the director of the National Union of Journalists in the Philippines, Nonoy Espina. Thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Maria, if we could start with you, what's your response to the court's verdict last Monday?
1: Anger. Uh, it wasn't unexpected, it follows the patterns, the trend of how the government has has uh, attacked media and attacked me and Rattler since 2016. So it, it's kind of like watching this slow train wreck coming and you're just standing there. Um, I thought we weren't the only ones on trial. Uh, and that verdict affected the judiciary as much as it did me and Ray, because these kind of so the insidious attacks on social media began it with this idea of she's not a journalist, she's a criminal. And it took four years. But this decision, this verdict that seems to be a verdict in another case, not a case of republication, this verdict now solidifies this insidious attack against me and Rattler. Uh, it's, uh It's not going to silence us. It's independent journalism will survive and they won't stifle press freedom. We'll continue challenging this case. It's uh, And to quote Nelson Mandela at the end of it is is the height of well, comedy.
2: I want to come back to the role of the judiciary in the Philippines in a moment and particularly that Mandela quote. But Nonoy, what did you think of the verdict? Yeah.
0: Well, after the initial anger, uh, I was actually sad when I realised that... Um, how much this government had actually uh, twisted the law beyond recognition and turned it into a weapon? I mean, the, it was it was crazy the way they um, they changed the pres- prescription period for the filing of a case and and um, considered a typographical correction a whole republication of the whole article. So, and for the judge to actually accept that and rule based on those. Uh, uh, and, and those uh, manipulations of the law was kind of scary, you know. Like how how uh, I I I I'm sure all of us grew up uh, believing that laws were supposed to protect us, and now here comes a government that actually uses the law as a weapon against us, and that's a scary part.
2: Yes, let me get this right, Maria. This whole conviction actually stems on a technicality, as I understand it. You're being convicted for a law that was introduced in September 2012, but the article actually predated that new law by six months. How is that possible?
1: Well, anything is possible apparently in the Philippines today. That that's correct. Uh, You know, a law is being applied retroactively, and in order, as Nono said, in order to actually be able to do this, what they did is uh, here's the crux of it. Someone in Rappler fixed a typographical error. They changed one letter of one word two years after the article was published in twenty. The article was published in 2012. In 2014. Uh, someone fixed the typographical error. Based on that, they were able to file a case of republication. It's a completely novel idea: continuous publication that will that will have repercussions for every news group, anyone who publishes anything online today. And then, as Nonoy said, you know, uh, they also then very creatively uh, said that the period of prescription, the statute of limitations for libel, which is one year, they changed it to twelve years. Uh, these, these are legal acrobatics that that are, are frankly astounding that the judge accepted it. And by doing so, she now applies this to every Filipino.
2: So when we say they, who are we talking about that's behind these changes to the law?
0: Well, I think it's pretty obvious that, um, you know, government claims uh, the, the case was filed by, by a private complainant. Fine. But the fact is, it was the department of justice that you know that played around with the law and uh, made sure that uh, they found loopholes that would uh that would make uh, the ca- uh, that would bring the case to court and i think uh, that's pretty much uh, the way i see it it's basically government when we say they it is government and um look at the pattern of uh uh, from the start of Duterte's presidency, he's been after media, he's been after Rappler, he's been after ABS-CBN, he shut down ABS-CBN, and now uh, they're going after Rappler with a vengeance. Uh, Maria's facing, what, seven more criminal cases? And yes. if that isn't, you know, if that isn't uh, clearly a government uh, offensive, uh, I don't know what is.
1: And I'll I'll add to that definitely the Philippine government, because uh, just look at the trend again since President Duterte took office. And in Rappler, uh, in 2016, we came under intense online attacks because we challenged the impunity of the Duterte administration in this drug war that has killed, according to our Human Rights Commission, at least 27,000 people. Uh, and, and then we also challenged the impunity of the propaganda war that the government is launching using Facebook, using social media to stifle narratives and to attack people like me. Uh, uh, Aside from that, that online narrative bottom up was then Uh, repeated by President Duterte about a year later when he attacked Rappler with the same narrative. And that narrative is, you know, journalist criminal. That's what they were cementing. It's tearing down at the trust and the credibility of news organizations. In his State of the Nation address, he he said he, he essentially attacked us, repeating the same lies that have been seeded on social media. A week later, we got our first subpoena. A few months later, 2018 was a banner year when the government filed 11 cases and investigations against me and Rappler. Uh, by 2019, um, I had to post bail eight times on eight criminal charges that are broad three buckets which was the cyber libel, tax evasion. You know, when six months earlier, the government had given Rappler an award for being one of the top corporate taxpayers. And then the third bucket is securities fraud. Um, and I was arrested, not once, but twice and detained. The government wants media to feel its power and they, it's a, a combination of violence and intimidation, harassment. So much of my time in 2019 was spent dealing with legal cases, almost 90%. there weeks when I was in court four times in four different courtrooms, I now know our justice system very intimately. But you know, again, I, I I don't know what, well, I do know what they want to do. The weaponization of the law has already jailed a senator who's outspoken. Lila DeLima has been in jail for three years now, February 2017. Um, And then and last thing I think is just to say, you know, the this narrative seated on social media is that this is a private individual. Well, it's really interesting to me because the case was filed after the government tried to shut us down in January 2018. So the case was filed in February of, of uh, uh, 2018. It's part of a pattern. Uh, the trend is very clear. The fact that the lies continue is disheartening at best. And, and like no, no, makes me extremely sad for the state of not just a rule of law in our country, but also our democracy.
2: Human rights lawyer um, Amal Clooney, who has had an involvement with you and the case, has called it an affront to the law. What are we to make of the role of the judiciary in this prosecution and in terms of the, protecting the Filipino constitution?
1: answer and then no, no, I'm sure we'll have more choice words because NUJP thankfully has been at the forefront of helping defend every journalist and every news group that comes under attack. And there are many of us, right? Uh, it's death by a thousand cuts. I I have said that within six months of taking power, President Ducertes, uh became the strongest a leader our nation has ever had with the collapse of the institutions. Uh, and, and it's really three C's corrupt, coerce, or co-opt. If you don't do any of these three, you become targeted.
0: The judiciary has always been seen as the, uh, as the sick man of government. Well, of course, there's executive is it's pretty corrupt, but the judiciary has always been seen as uh, very corrupt as well. Uh, like, you know, uh, there are too few judges, I think, and too many cases. In fact, uh, you could uh, get charged and detained for years, and actually uh, be jailed for more than uh, the judge will eventually sentence you to. So that's how bad it is. If you, I'm sure you've seen all these reports of our uh, of our jails and uh, how they're crammed, uh, sometimes uh, four times as much as they can hold, and um, but I think um, it also—it's—it's uh, it's the whole governance structure. Actually, it's, its the whole system of governance that's—that's—that's that's, um, that's really uh, damaged. And um, if 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 you look at if if you look at the Philippines as a democracy, I cannot imagine a democracy that has seen 188 journalists killed since 1986, and only a handful of these killings have been sold and of those, except, of course, for the Ampatuan massacre, where we actually saw masterminds convicted, most of the cases, uh, only a handful have reached uh, convictions, and the convicts are mostly just the gunmen, not the masterminds themselves. So there's there's a whole culture of impunity operating here, not just journalists, but uh, people. The drug war has seen what I, I think we've probably reached the 30,000 mark by now, because the killings have gone on in, in spite of the pandemic. So that's how bad the system is. It's, a, it's really a damaged system, and I'm not sure how long we can last under this.
2: It's very interesting, those figures that you're talking about, 186 killings, and yet my knowledge of the Philippines and journalism is that it's a very robust culture in journalism. You've got a lot of courageous journalists.
0: Um, well, the fear is there, but, uh, yeah, for, for the most part, uh, especially our, our membership is, uh, spread around the country. And I have seen very, very few people braver than our colleagues on the ground, in the provinces in the regions, uh, covering, covering far-flung and the conflicts in uh, far-flung areas, covering the natural disasters that bash us every year. And these people have been through hell and back and they're still there and they're, they're not, you know. they're not stepping back at all. So uh, it's only their courage that actually gives me hope for uh, the future of Philippine journalism. Otherwise, I'm not sure with all the threats and all the debts and all the lawsuits and the pressures. It's a pretty bad time, actually.
2: Maria, outside the court, in response to the verdict, you said we're redefining what the new world is going to look like and what journalism is going to become. What did you mean by those comments?
1: I think at every level, you know, there's a new meaning to the idea of creative destruction. Um, the business of journalism itself is <clears throat> our business model is dead. Advertising is dead. And the part of that is because technology platforms have siphoned a lot of it. They are the same. The social media platforms are also the same platforms that attacks on our credibility, uh, eroding trust. This is where it's also happening uh, just a short, uh, maybe two days ago in the U.S., uh, Graphica just unveiled ongoing Russian disinformation, uh, information operations uh, here in the Philippines. It's never stopped. And this is happening on on Facebook. A hundred percent of Filipinos on the Internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our Internet. So these decisions in Silicon Valley, you know, it, it all flows downhill what may seem like a random decision or an easy decision for growth, in our case, could be deadly. And I think the global South bears the brunt of these decisions, the kind of genocide that has happened in Myanmar, the kinds of hate, the inciting to hate that is happening here, uh, the damage to our reputation. What we've seen in the last four years was enabled by Facebook, this kind of exponential attacks. Look, Nonoy said that... uh, uh, journalists are under attack on every front in the Philippines today. And I, I, I'm i lucky in the sense that you, uh, there's a, a spotlight that has now come on me. But what we're trying to do is to also spotlight everyone, every other journalist that's trying to do this. And I think the last point I'll say is what's happening in the Philippines is happening in other democracies that are being weakened by cheap armies on social media, this is happening globally. Um, but the, I, you asked me a direct question and let me answer that one, which is, you know, what did I mean by that? Um, everything, it, especially during the pandemic, when we're under lockdown, our workflow processes have to change. Our business model has to change. Our, the way we protect our people has to change. And the way we hold power to account has to change even as government gains greater power
0: because of COVID-19. Being actually exploiting the pandemic to, uh, well, uh, aside from, of course, um, uh, questionable deals with the funds that are supposed to combat the disease, government, I think, is actually exploiting this to not only to clamp down, but um, you know to pass legislation that will eventually see us uh, under... Uh, well, let's call it dictatorial rule. I mean, uh, we've got a we've got an anti-terrorism bill on his desk waiting for his signature, and it's such a draconian uh, uh, measure that um, practically everything you do or say could be construed as terrorism. And um, I, I personally am scared of the implications for civil rights, and that's being done under a pandemic. You know so. There's not much we can do to, you know, to protest and go out in the streets and raise our voices,
1: because there are three things that have happened in 2020 that makes this even worse for us. And Nona, I mentioned one of them: the passage of this mm-hmm. anti-terror bill that is so draconian that uh, when when the government now labels you any critic, it can label any critic a terrorist now and arrest you without a warrant and detain you for up to 24 days. But that's only one. The second one is the pandemic itself, the lockdown. We are in our 13th week of lockdown. People are stuck at home. And during that time period, the largest broadcaster, the largest news group here in the Philippines, ABS-CBN, was shut down. And that's something, you know, it, 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 this is part of that pattern. Uh, the last time ABS-CBN went black was in 1972, when Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law, and it was shut for 14 years. So these are alarming trends. And I think as we come out of this, out of the lockdown, as Filipinos deal with the impact, the contraction of the economy, uh, their loss of their jobs, we're simultaneously faced with the loss of our freedoms. Our country is on the precipice. We are about to fundamentally change what democracy means. We're about to lose the rights guaranteed in our constitution. And that's part of the reason I think the two of us, that we're all speaking up right now.
2: When you say shut down, why? what was the official reason for the shutdown and who was it shut down by? Official
0: reason was the official reason, and it's true, its franchise lapsed before Congress could grant it a new one. But the fact is, Congress had slept on that franchise renewal for, for years and allowed it, to, you know, basically did nothing until it lapsed, leaving, a, leaving government with an excuse to serve the network a cease and desist order, which it could not refuse. So it shut down. And... Um, could actually have given ABS-CBN a provisional authority to continue operating, which it has done with other other networks, but it didn't do so this time. And now they're still hearing uh, a new franchise uh, application, and until that's done, ABS-CBN stays off air.
2: So it's and, still off air. No,
0: yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 still another case of playing with the law to you know to get your target. So. That's that's I where think, we are right now. I think this is
1: very simple. early on in 2016, President Duterte said he was not going to grant the franchise of ABS-CBN. Imagine it's like shutting down in the U.S. would be like shutting down CBS or CNN in in and or in Britain, BBC, your top network, shutting that down, right? Uh, and then when uh, they delayed, as as Norma said, the franchise was delayed, and and then finally. Even though they, the network was given public assurance that their franchise, that they would have provisional uh, approval to continue operating. A day after the franchise ended, like with Rappler, a minor regulatory agency handed them a cease and desist order. Within hours, the network went dark. Um, That's the kind of thing we face. It truly is death by a thousand cuts. And now, you know, as these hearings continue, it's becoming very clear to all of us that we may not see ABS-CBN come back up.
2: So even though the focus, Maria, has been on Rappler and the charges that uh, your organization and yourself have been facing, in fact, the attacks on the press are going much wider than what's happening at Rappler.
1: Absolutely, I think you know we're just part of the reason the focus uh, shifted to us is because I, I've spent 20 years, almost 20 years of my career outside the Philippines, and a lot of my colleagues have been alarmed. You know, and and I guess as media comes under attack in all these different countries, you look at the United States, you look at the Philippines. They, it's very strange to see the similarities and the parallels. But I think here in the Philippines, you know, it's like our body politic has been gashed so often; we're literally bleeding out. Or let me use a a COVID nineteen paradigm, right? Uh, The a virus has infected our democracy, and it is near death. And that's part of the reason I think we're raising the alarm. We must do something. Having said that, it is up to the Filipino people, and uh, I think that we are seeing movement, that Filipinos are becoming more aware. They're afraid of the anti-terror bill for sure. But um, the Philippine Daily Inquirer, the first news group under attack by President Duterte, that was the first one he attacked them. And the owners then essentially tried to sell the the paper to a friend of President Duterte. Uh, Well, they had this quote, Uh, first they came for the journalists we don't know what happens next. Of course, it's a, a play on a very old, a much older quote. But essentially oh. now, I think people, Filipinos, are aware of what's happening. But the propaganda war is intense. And we are going to get the government we deserve.
2: Can we just talk for a minute and focus on that propaganda war that you, you're you talking about? These attacks on you, particularly, Maria, go back to 2016, and they started on social media. Can you just explain how that took place and why it took place at that particular time?
1: Mayor Duterte, then Mayor Duterte, is the first politician who effectively used social media to win an election. And, you know, I was actually, you know, thrilled because I always knew the power of social media. It It wasn't after he was elected that social media was really weaponized. We saw bits and pieces of it, uh, but it was when the drug war began that the kind of exponential attacks truly began. And this is, look, people have always said propaganda has been around for a long time, but technology-enabled propaganda uh, works very differently. A lie laced with anger and hate spreads fastest on social media a lie told a million times becomes a fact. The design of the social media platforms build polarity, build the divisiveness into our societies, right? This is essentially a behavioral modification system. So once we saw these attacks and they accomplished two things, um, You know, well, let me first say what happened. We published, we challenged the government's narrative of this brutal drug war that they're only killing criminals. Uh, we began an impunity series showing that these are innocents, that the same gun, for example, with the same registration was used in multiple, multiple times. Uh, witnesses saying that the police were the ones who killed. So we did this whole series. Simultaneously, we did what we called the propaganda war series. We looked at the data. And as soon as we published this three-part propaganda series in 2016, the first was called Weaponizing the Internet. The second was How Facebook Algorithms Impact Democracies, probably the first time that was questioned globally. And the third was Manufactured Consent, looking at how 26 fake accounts, uh, sorry about that, looking at how 26 fake accounts could reach up to 3 million people, as soon as sorry, 3 million other accounts, because we don't know whether they're people or, or not. Um, as soon as we released that, I received attacks like I had never seen them before at a frequency that was humanly not possible to deal with. I've, at one point, I just was started counting them, and I kept an Excel sheet to just slot them in, 90 at least, 90 nine zero hate messages per hour. And that isn't meant to do two things. Um, it's meant to make you doubt yourself, to silence your journalism. And the second one is to create a bandwagon effect. It is, you know, I use the phrase astroturfing, fake grass. It's it's astroturfing, saying a lie a million times. People think there's a lot of people who believe this and then they jump on the bandwagon. That is what has been happening in the Philippines. It is. What is underpinning the popularity of President Duterte? Social media is extremely powerful, and we showed evidence of how people who have been appointed to government were at the center of the creation of these lies. The government has repeatedly denied it, but the evidence is there, you know. Uh, and that's that's where it began. Then after, after let me, let me just you know say what happened. In, in 2016, they ceded the word criminal for me. They filed the cases in 2011, cases in 2018. And in 2020, I've been convicted by a court. What The weaponization of the law followed the insidious attacks on social media. And then you have a public that is being actively manipulated by its government.
2: When you talk about attacks, Maria, I should point out that some of these attacks were particularly vicious and violent in what they were doing, what they were saying to you, weren't they?
1: Yes, absolutely. you know i, I I've lost count, and at one point i I just started looking for the most creative ones. You kind of have to harden yourself to these because um, they will look at your most insecure Points in your life and they will hammer it until it splits wide open. That's the strategy, right? In every democratic, in every society that I've seen this tactic employed, they take a fracture line of society and they pound it open. In the United States in 2016, and this is in the Mueller report, the target were Americans who were about to vote, but the major fracture line that they pounded was racial tension, racial identity. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Look where that went in 2020. So this is, it's like the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, the dream world. Social media is that world where you manipulate in darkness and change the real world.
2: There appear to be very strong parallels between the role that social media is playing in this, in the attacks on you and the rest of the press, and the US, do you see very strong parallels? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And you can see this uh, just this week, uh, Graphica, which is a data analytics company, it was one of two companies that the US Senate Intelligence Committee uh, gave data in December of 2018 about the the Russian disinformation networks and the influence operations they were conducting in the United States. Um, we, by the way, took the data that they had, that they published, and found the links from the Philippines. So you see bottom-up in every country these networks of disinformation that have been created linking up to kind of the global nervous system of disinformation. Uh, just this week, Graphica released a uh, a 150-page report that showed you ongoing influence operations, Russian in origin, working hand in hand with the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, and the Russian military intelligence, the the GRU. Uh, it's very bizarre. They're using uh, they're using uh, what they call disposable accounts, right? But it's different. Again, it, this is like the arms race of the of our generation. They find one way of weaponizing a message and then the social media platform kills it. Then they find another one. It's an escalation. But the reality is that these social media platforms are literally behavioral modification systems uh, that, that take our most intimate selves that are codified in data, machine learning, then artificial intelligence, and sells it to the highest bidder, whether that's a company or a nation. The reality is also that we in the Philippines are linked to the United States. The only former colony of the United States, we are 109 million people, largely English speaking. And in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, the whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, actually said that we were a petri dish. They tested tactics of mass manipulation in the Philippines, and if it worked, they his word was ported get over to the West.
2: A hundred and nine million people, and seventy million people regularly using Facebook. Yes,
1: seventy. Actually, it's seventy-one million people now. I think the latest numbers that I saw. Oh, I, I forgot the one thing also that shows you the evidence in the Cambridge Analytica scandal: the most number of compromised accounts were American in the U.S., but the country with the second most number of compromised accounts was the Philippines.
2: Nonoy, if I could talk to you <laughs> about another concerning. Uh, recent development, the creation of hundreds of dummy Facebook accounts. Can you uh-huh. explain how they're being used? We actually don't know
0: what they are for because uh, most of those that we've found remain empty for now anyways. And uh, we still have to backtrack and see if uh, they're being used for something else. But, um, it I mean, the timing was eerie. It was uh, when just when people were... Uh, opening up and uh, speaking out against the anti-terrorism bill. And
2: This was in suddenly, recent weeks, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was like two weeks ago, I think. Yep. And, um, the pattern was uh, it started with uh, these uh, students and faculty of uh, the University of the Philippines campus in Cebu City where uh, a protest had been violently dispersed by police. And the first targets were students and faculty from that uh, from that campus and then uh, the next targets that we saw were uh, activists who were uh, active against the uh, the anti-terrorism bill on social media mostly uh, Manila universities and then it started spreading until we saw journalists having multiple clone accounts and I think I myself at about 9 or 10 and um, some of this many as 15, and we asked Facebook what was happening, and up to now they haven't, you know, they haven't come back to us and with an explanation. And we have checked; a lot of the full, uh, fake accounts are still there. And in fact, uh, I managed to uh, have my have my first fake accounts taken down, about six or seven of them. And then when I checked again, there were new accounts, and uh, I just stopped counting, you know. It was like facebook wasn't doing anything about it anyway so uh, we'll still have to check back and see how these uh, accounts are doing now
2: so how are these dummy accounts being used are they being used to attack other people or uh, to create a, a false impression that journalists or or people whose name the accounts are in are somehow vicious or what's what's happening mm, well
0: uh there were uh, there were some uh, activists who reported that they they were being threatened by the fake accounts, you know. So that was one. And um, we talked to some uh, technical uh, technology experts, and they were saying that a possible use of these fake accounts would be, you know, if they wanted to bump you off uh, later, they could populate these accounts and uh, then uh, mask them. Uh, file mass complaints against you and get you out. And then the fake accounts take over. But I mean, that's, I don't see that happening yet, but that's one possibility. But the fact that activists were being threatened by the fake accounts, I think points to the possibility of uh, two possible suspects, which would be, I I think would be government uh, getting at people uh, opposed to the anti-terrorist bill. Because at that point, I think opposition was starting to grow, and uh, was uh, you know uh, we were kind of thinking it might reach uh, a critical mass, and and uh, then the fake accounts came, and there was kind of a easing off, and um, so we're at this point right now where we still don't know when the president is going to sign that, and um, we don't know when, if, or when they're going to start using those fake accounts against us.
2: Maria, what do you make of these fake accounts?
1: It's hard to say, and this, is, this again shows you the kind of power one social media platform has. What I knew that weekend was that uh, many people who were afraid, literally afraid, including some of, of we call them movers in Rappler, young kids, uh, I, I, you know, we were talking to 16 and 17-year-old kids who had posted opposition to the terror bill, to this anti-terror bill. And now they were being threatened. Now, one, one was threatened uh, by private messages. And, you know, uh, she actually pulled down her account. Uh, the kind of fear that I saw showed me the impact of this strategy. And, you uh, You know, when it attacks people like me or like Nonoy, we're okay because we've dealt with this before. Plus, I'm in my 50s. I've been a journalist a long time, right? We're different. But when you're attacking 16-year-olds who are just finding their voices, this is atrocious. Um, Facebook's reaction left a lot to be desired. They gave a kind of uh, tepid response that they're seeing something, they don't know what it is, but they will check. And, and while they have briefed government agencies, it, it feels like, you know, this lack of transparency and lack of accountability leads to fears. Some of these accounts, I, I I believe, may have been there before. They may already have been there, but the fact that the people who first discovered them were the eight people, that the, the people who were arrested in a university in Cebu, which is outside Manila, that created fear. And then the next, that was on a Friday, right? And Saturday they discovered it. By Sunday, everyone was looking at it. No, no, I mentioned he had some. We ran a script on my name, and within the first five minutes, there were already 16 accounts, which is at that point, I stopped wasting my time on Facebook, you know, and I just, because I think this is criminal that they would put the onus of safety on their users. You know, 16 year olds have no defenses against this and their families are scared. And And those attacks included things like you will go to jail. We will kill your father. I mean, these are things that shouldn't be left, uh, shouldn't be allowed to happen. Having said that, there's still no real official statement. Facebook does. It. Look, we're frenemies. Right now you can see I'm agitated because I feel like it would have been impossible for a verdict like this to be even questioned if the ground of reality hadn't been so shaken and made so gray by the information operations that Facebook allows. So this is a direct a direct consequence of allowing lies to spread faster than really boring facts. And when fear and violence online translate to real physical violence. And we know that this is the case. Research has shown that the terrorist attacks in the in different parts of the world have shown that. And part of the reason I, I increased security in Rambo was precisely because these exponential attacks online change the way people think and may even push people to be violent. So um, I think more is demanded from Facebook. I think we should all demand this because it has responsibilities. It cannot allow this to continue.
2: Maria and Nonoy, do you believe that the impl- – oh, we've just talked about Facebook and the implications of that, but do you believe the implications of the verdict go way beyond the Philippines?
1: Absolutely, mm,
0: yes. You know, it could influence other populist uh, leaders to you – know, well, I mean, they're probably doing the same thing now. And um, they, these people feed off feed off each other, and uh, the repression, I think, is just going to get worse everywhere. I mean, in Myanmar, we're getting reports; and it's it's really bad now. And uh, in Cambodia, the uh, colleagues there have been sounding alarms as well. And even East Timor, which uh, is supposed to be the, you know, the shining light uh, right now in the region, uh, is about to pass a criminal libel uh, law. So. Mm, I think uh, cases like this and the impact it will have, I think we we'll, we can see a general uh, worsening of press freedom around the world. I, I think that,
1: you know, not only is it, uh, let, let's start this way. This is one of the most dangerous times to be a journalist, not just because of formal power, but because the erosion of trust, the rise of these populist authoritarian style leaders around the world was enabled by technology. This is global in nature. All of the studies beginning in 2017 started telling us that social media, cheap armies on social media, was tearing apart democracy, right? We already know here in the Philippines that uh, social media has been a powerful tool for President Duterte. He was a vanguard in this practice of using Facebook to spread propaganda, to divide our society. Here in the Philippines, it's a gap between the rich and the poor, uh, and it undermines facts, right? But beyond that, this is a flaw in our digital ecosystem that are being abused by leaders like President Duterte, Um The design and the structure of our digital tools uh, are, are actually helping tear apart democracy. It's a design that's optimized for engagement over truth. It prioritizes virality over the quality of information, over facts. And that's part of the reason we have this fractured and unstable media ecosystem. Now throw in the journalists. We used to be the gatekeepers of facts, right? We lost that power to social media platforms when it was our turn to be the gatekeepers, we were liable. We kept the lies at bay because we were liable for it. Now that the tech platforms are the gatekeepers, they've abdicated responsibility. In fact, they make more money by allowing the lies to spread faster. So yes, this goes, I I know I went through a whole thing, right, to tell you, but think about it like this. This conviction just codifies into law the same attacks that have have changed the perception of Filipinos. It is the same thing happening in every country around the world. You can see, you know, let's again go to the United States and and the, the reaction of the police and the leaders and President Trump. Uh, this now, this, this conviction definitely matters beyond journalists. It, it matters to every Filipino, but I think it is a sign of the times to come for other journalists, for other democracies around the world, because we all now live on that same social media platform. The largest distributor of news globally is Facebook. And if that design is having this impact in the Philippines, it will have the same impact in your country.
2: There are many things that you've both raised in this interview that we'd love to come back to you about an, at another time. But can I ask you as a final question to both of you, what can journalists in Australia be doing? What can citizens in Australia as well be doing to help your cause in the Philippines at this point?
0: For the longest time, NUJP has always said that international support is very, very important.
2: We, we, you know, we need to
0: know, we need to feel that the eyes of the world are on us. Um, I mean Duterte may not care, but knowing that you know, knowing that uh, you you guys have our backs gives us that uh, confidence and that courage to soldier on. Um, you know this isn't this isn't a fight that we can win alone. Although of course it will take Filipino, uh, uh, the Filipinos to actually uh, do the grunt grunt work. But the Australian people, I'm sure if. You know, if your government can raise its voice and, you know, uh, suggest to Duterte, like, look, take care of your people. You're not doing the right thing. I'm sure it's it could, you know, it could help. And colleagues, uh, colleagues in Australia, I mean, uh, we we have a uh, great backing from uh, Australian colleagues. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure we're covered by that. But um, more and more pressure on our government really would uh, definitely help.
1: I think Australians have their own battle, Australian journalists have their own battles to fight. You, you, unlike the United States, don't have a Bill of Rights that guarantees freedom of the press, right? And you're seeing similar things that, uh, that are happening here. Um, so I, I think look at us as a cautionary tale. That's the first. No, it can get much worse know that uh, there is a poison in our information ecosystem or, you know, as a sign of the times, there's a virus in our information ecosystem um, to help us. Thank you for having us in this interview. Helping us shine the light is one way asking. Um, but then the other part is I'll be more direct because Rappler's legal fees have just escalated and we continue to fight. There are times when we have to spend up to $40,000 a month. We're a very small group. This is insane. And the only reason we're still able to fight is because of the generosity of strangers, both in in support and and our legal fund at the beginning, right, was was actually created. You can can go to rappler.com slash crowdfunding to help us. But beyond that, just the shining the light Uh, the kinds of, uh, after I was uh, convicted Monday, I can't even say thank you. There have been so many messages of support and that means a ton to Rappler, to me, uh, to Filipino journalists who are really at the front lines.
2: Maria Ressa and Nonoy Espina, thank you both so much for joining us today. Maria, good luck with the appeal. We'll be watching and we'll be talking again soon, I hope.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you so much.
2: And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter... Our handle is for the state AU. Thanks to producer Anthony Dockrell. My name's Sharon Davis and thank you for listening.